Welcome to the Faith and Culture Now podcast. I'm Scott Schiffer, and today I'm joined with uh, Dr. Christine Jones. So, uh, Christine, as always, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you. It's great to be here, and it's Advent now, so happy Advent. Yes, hopefully, uh, those of you who are listening to the podcast are able to also be taking part in some Advent devotionals or things like that. Christine works at Dallas Baptist University. They wrote their own Advent uh, devotional series for this uh, this winter, and I think you can find it on the school's website. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the Bible Project also has a great Advent devotional series, and as we begin today, we're going to begin talking about Christmas stuff for the next several podcasts since it's December, and yeah. so today we're going to focus primarily just on the actual um, birth story itself, the, uh, the point of Christmas for Christians is that it's a celebration of the incarnation. And the incarnation is the act of God um, taking upon humanity himself in the person of Jesus Christ and um, coming to earth to essentially uh, provide a means of salvation for all of humanity. And so uh, I would argue that the incarnation is the central event of scripture. Uh, It is what leads to the culmination of um, uh, salvation on the cross uh, through Christ and his work there. And so as we begin talking about the incarnation, uh, I think we begin with just the announcement in the Gospels that um, this child is going to be born. And uh, not only is he going to be born, but he's going to be born in a place called Nazareth. And uh, many people thought that that was pretty ridiculous because what good thing can come out of Nazareth? It's such a small, insignificant town. Uh, But Mary and Joseph had traveled there. A common misconception is that Mary traveled via donkey to get to this town. Maybe she did, but we don't know because the Bible actually doesn't say anything about how they traveled to get there. It simply states that they went there. And once they got there, Uh, it begins to talk about this um, birth experience. And in this birth experience, uh, what we typically get the idea of is that Mary and Joseph are going from house to house going, hey, do you guys have any room in your hotel? Hey, do you have any room in your hotel? (laughs) Oh, nobody does. Well, we'll go out here with the animals. And that is so far-fetched from what the scriptures actually say. Uh, It does say there was um, no room. Uh, in in uh, the inn, uh, but what people need to realize is that in the first century, houses in small Jewish communities typically had the stable on the first floor of the house, and then um, typically houses were sort of made in like a square uh, with like a courtyard between all four walls, and so you had certain bedrooms. Most bedrooms were upstairs, and because this is a time during census, all these families are traveling around and meeting up with other family members in these towns. So it's actually most likely that Joseph and Mary were at a relative's home and that there wasn't room primarily for the birth event inside the home with all the other guests. They wanted to have a little bit of privacy. So it's very likely that Mary and Joseph and probably some of Mary's other family members went to the barn and they probably assisted her uh, with the birth but not out in some, you know, uh, ranch style, you know, uh, <laughs> barn, you know, a mile away from the house, but actually on the first floor of the home, they're right in with all the rest of the family. And so 
which of course leads us to things like Silent Night, where you're like, oh, it's so quiet. Jesus didn't even cry. No, 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 that's in the song, but it's not in the Bible. All right. And, uh, so uh, we have all these great misnomers, but one of the, the most interesting aspects of this initial birth story is that Mary herself was a virgin. And so, Christine, what are some of your thoughts on this particular issue? Oh, man. Well, you know, I, I'm not an expert on this. A lot of people have a lot of discussions about what exactly the Bible means when it uses the words that we translate virgin. So I'm not going to talk about any of that. What interests me so much about Mary's story, actually, is that it's not the only virgin birth story out there from around this time. And it's not the only miraculous uh, birth story involving a deity. So when we think about the birth of Jesus, we might be tempted to say, well, goodness, there's all these other narratives out there that sound similar. You get, um, oh, let me think of a few Romulus and Remus are supposed to have been born of a Vestal Virgin, right? That's one of them. I think of a lot of them from Greek and Roman mythology. Um, there's a story, a, a poem that I teach every semester called Leda and the Swan, and it's Yeats's take on the myth of Zeus turning himself into a swan in order to impregnate Leda. And um, so, you know, we have these other stories that are out there. So I find myself asking, well, okay, well, what's so special about this Christian story? Why should we believe it when there's these other stories out there of, of virgin births and miraculous births? What makes this one special or believable? And uh, I, I think kind of the first thing that I have to tackle is that we actually have a lot of stories like this where there are what we might call parallel myths or similar stories throughout a lot of different cultures around the same kinds of topics. Cultures have mm -hmm. creation stories. Other cultures have myth. Um, sorry. Other cultures have flood stories. Right. right. And um, so we, we, we encounter these across a lot of different cultures and we kind of have to know what to do with those first of all. And, um, the first thing that comes to my mind is not that this proliferation of stories disproves Christianity, but actually that it's a sign that these stories are really important to humanity, that these kinds of themes, the ideas that come up in these stories, they really matter. And I'm going to use the word myth, not as a thing that is false, but as a story that reveals something important about a culture. This is what myths do. They tell us something about their worldview. They tell us something that matters about their society. And so when I see a particular kind of story showing up in culture after culture after culture, I think, man, God must have put this kind of desire in the hearts of humanity to want a certain kind of story, to be drawn to a certain kind of story. And it leads me to what J.R.R. Tolkien famously said, which is that Christianity is the true myth, that in Christianity we see some of these stories come true in the life of Jesus. And I really do believe that. So mm -hmm. for me, that's the kind of first step in all of this. But then the second step I have to ask myself is if a myth exists to tell us something about that culture, 
then the way the story is told and the details of the story matter, right? Those details matter because they tell us something important. So um, I'm going to go back to the Zeus and Leda example. So in the story of Zeus and Leda, here's what happens. Zeus turns himself into a swan. He wants to sleep with Leda, so he rapes her. And it's a, it's a terrible thing. She becomes pregnant. Um, to kind of cover this, she goes ahead and sleeps with her husband. And we end up with four births as a result of this. And these four births end up being kind of uh, foundational to the Trojan War and to uh, the hugely important events of Greek history that unfold in the aftermath. Okay, so we can see that there's this important kind of foundational nature to these births. Um, and what strikes me as being so different and so important about the Christian story is that God sends an angel. He sends a messenger, Gabriel. And Gabriel announces to Mary, um, you're, you're going to be the mother of God. You're going to give birth to the Most High. And she says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And he explains it to her. He says, nothing is impossible with God. And then this is the key. She consents. She says, let it, let it be unto me. I'm the Lord's servant. I'm the Lord's servant. So there's, um, there's consent, there's humility, there's love in this story. And that is completely different from what we get in the story of Zeus and Leda. So for me, if I'm looking at a story's a, a, a culture's sort of founding story and I'm asking, what does this teach me? This teaches me that God is a God of love. This teaches me that the Christian God is one who seeks consent. This teaches me that the Christian God is one who cares about Mary. He doesn't just see her as this means to an end. And all of that is so valuable. And then the second yeah. thing is what happens in the aftermath. So when you start to unpack a lot of these virgin birth myths that are out there, you will see that, um, that we can kind of explain them away with patriarchy. We can say, well, these women obviously needed to prove that the, to their husbands somehow that, oh, the, this, this birth was, was legit and I didn't cheat on you or, you know, I'm still a virgin. So they have to say, oh, it was miraculous, right? Mm -hmm. And the difference with Mary's situation is in the reaction from Joseph, her betrothed. So he, uh, first of all, decides to um, divorce her quietly, to break off the betrothal quietly. He's not going to expose her to a lot of scandal. He's going to be really kind. And then um, when he, too, gets this visit from an angel in a dream explaining to Joseph what happened, Joseph chooses to take Mary as his wife, to raise Jesus as his son. And that is such a kind, um, beautiful, and humane reaction from Joseph. So I, for me, I, I believe in the virgin birth. I believe that this story really happened. But even if I have to consider it on the level of a, of a, just a story, just like we have all these other stories, I'm blown away by the amount of love and the things that I learn about God and his nature from the story. Yeah, I think that when you look at the stories, especially a lot of the ancient world mythological stories from Egypt, 
and from Greece, um, uh, what you find is that the deities are typically um, reflections of humanity, mm-hmm. but they're not reflections of humanity at its best. They're reflections of fallen humanity with all the same problems that we have. <laughs> and yep. so uh, you have, you know, Zeus making, you know, an immoral choice with this woman. Uh, but then, you know, with Leda, but then you also have uh, the, the result of their kids leading to more despair, more destruction, more heartache. And you just yep. see sort of um, lots of, well, if you will, drama, you know, it's just all kinds of um, problem after problem after problem. Whereas in the Christian story, you find God uh, always acting appropriately and in accordance with his nature, uh, uh, which we consider to be good, right? Mm, Uh, Yes. Then you have humans uh, who don't always make good decisions, but when these humans in the story are doing as God has instructed them to do, uh, we find a very different situation than what we would have found if people were doing what they wanted to do. And mm-hmm. so, uh, or rather, uh, what we in our fallen nature <laughs> don't want to do. Um, but it's, de- it's definitely a big stark contrast to see the way that uh, the angels come to Mary, the angels come to Joseph. You also see, um, you know, issues with, I think uh, it's Mary's uh, sister, perhaps, uh, I'm trying to think of it. Anyway, Elizabeth, cousin, um, Elizabeth, yeah, yeah. cousin, cousin. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, she has the issues with, you know, the angel as well. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and she has John as her son, John eventually becomes John the Baptist, who's baptizing people as a forerunner mm-hmm. to the public ministry of Christ. Uh, but in all these situations, the family is working together to to do the right thing and to, um, uh, if you will, be redemptive in all that they're doing. You know, Mary saying, yeah. yes, God, I'll allow you to use me to bring about your, your plan. And Joseph saying, I'll stand by Mary as you bring about your plan. And the extended family is saying, we'll stand by this family as God brings about his plan. And so it's very communal. And, yeah. uh, it's a, it's a very positive experience. Uh, like you, I also believe that the story is true and really happened. And, uh, to go back to Tolkien, um, I I would agree, you know, Christianity is a true myth in the sense that, uh, it takes, um, its stories, uh, they share something that is founded in reality. Uh, that is what all humanity is programmed and designed to want and to need. Mm. Um, I think that there's something to all the ancient world stories of worldwide floods. And uh, it seems to me that if there are so many stories of this, something must have happened at some <laughs> point, you know? Yep. Um, yep. And then, you know, as Christians, we would say what the scriptures teach is the accurate story of what happened. Although I wouldn't argue that Christians always interpret it correctly, <laughs> but um, that's a whole nother issue. So uh, when it come, we come back to the, the birth story of Christ, um, you know, Christ is born, he is laid in a manger, and then we're frequently told that he's visited by the shepherds and by the wise men. And when it comes to the wise men, uh, sometimes we refer to them as three kings, 
Sometimes mm-hmm. uh, we get, well, I think frequently because in activity scenes, we get this idea that they're there on the very night. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, you know, by the time the wise men get there, um, it suggests that they present uh, Jesus's gifts to him as a young child at his home, not even uh, where he was born. And so uh, then, of course, Herod has all the children two years old and un- under put to death. Uh, well, why that? Well, because the wise men weren't there the night it happened. But scripture suggests that the shepherds were, and these are shepherds that were out in the fields just right down the road from Nazareth. So they came. And what I find to be interesting here is that, you know, typically if a king has a child, the first people that are going to see that child are the most royal subjects, the people with the highest class in society. Uh the highest status. And when Christ comes, the people that see him first, uh, at least according to the story, are people of very low status. They're the common people. Uh, And I think it's, again, a testimony to the fact that God is for all, not just the extremely wealthy or um, the extremely well-to-do. Any thoughts on that? Absolutely. I love this part of the story. I love that it's the shepherds who arrive um, and the shepherds who get, you know, a a host of angels singing to them. That's a wonderful image. Uh, The key term that keeps coming back to me over and over in the story is humility and also vulnerability. Uh, That the God of all creation willingly made himself completely vulnerable, completely dependent um, on his on his mother and willingly entered into this humble state. And so the shepherds are just one more example of that. And I I love that that this this shows us something about God. It shows us something about uh, Jesus's priorities. And you said earlier that the incarnation is the, it's the central event of scripture. And I really couldn't agree more. There's a, a, a Christmas song, or it's really an Advent song, I guess, that I love to sing this time of year called Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silent. And there's a line in it that says, uh, Lord of Lords in human fullness in the body and the blood. And in the church where I've been singing it lately, they have different words. They say, Lord of Lords in human vesture. And I just don't really like that because to me, vesture implies like a like a suit of clothes. Like Jesus just showed up and God showed up and put on like a flesh suit or something. But yeah. there's something so powerful that it, it's not just God wearing skin. It is, it is the Lord of all creation making himself completely vulnerable to become fully human, even as he is fully God. And that is powerful. In the early church, there were a number of different leaders who were helping the church try to flesh out exactly what they meant by the idea of Christ becoming man, being the God man. And some argued that he was fully God, just in a human body. Mm-hmm. And that idea was condemned and rejected by the early church because it, yeah. didn't, um, it didn't incorporate the fullness of humanity 
into it. Yeah. Uh, they said, you know, when, when Christ became incarnate, he took on everything that is human. And so yeah. I've heard um, some theologians say it like this, when Christ was laying in the manger, uh, vulnerable to the elements, vulnerable to, uh, you know, all things that infants need, he was still with his deity holding the universe intact. Mm. And uh, it's this sort of, um, I guess, if you will, um, bit of tension between mm. deity and his humanity. And uh, Luke says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, meaning that he went through all the experiences and things that humans go through. And um, he, um, he, as he grew in wisdom and stature, uh, added to his um, added to his deity all that it means to be human and experience and grow and learn as a human experientially as a human in that particular time and uh, uh, in in Jesus's growing what we find is him uh, not only experiencing things uh, as humans do but also becoming the model human for all of us. Um, you know, we don't look at Adam when we try to figure out how to be human. We're all like Adam. We all uh-huh. eat the fruit, um, but we try to be like Christ. And um, one of my favorite stories in the gospels is in Matthew chapter four, where Jesus goes to the desert and uh, in the desert, he's tempted by the devil. And, you know, the devil's like, Hey, you know, turn these, you know, rocks in the bread. And Jesus is like, you know, you don't live by bread alone. And, um, but it's interesting to me because in, in the story in Matthew 4, uh, Jesus is tempted by the devil with the same kinds of things that the devil tempted uh, Adam and Eve with in the garden. Mm-hmm. And instead of falling to those things uh, like Adam and Eve did, Jesus makes the right choice in every circumstance. You know, so he says things like, you know, look over the top of this mountain. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Well, Jesus already had all the kingdoms of the world because he's God. All that's in the world is the Lord, you know? Um, And um, we find, you know, Adam and Eve being promised things that they already have as well. Hey, eat this and you'll be like God. Well, they're already like God. They're already created in his image. And so the devil likes to promise things that, well, we already have. And um, when we believe what he's promising us, we trade what God's given us for something that's not actually good for us. Mm. And um, Christ made the right choices. And in his incarnation, he shows us what it, what it means to be human. Um, yeah. I think that uh, another thing that's interesting to me about the Christmas story is that we don't actually know when it happened. Mm. Um, so we celebrate it in December, on December 25th, and there has been talk uh, that, you know, that was a pagan holiday, and we Christianized it, um, but actually that's that's not really true. There's really no connection to pagan holidays with us celebrating on December 25th, and our celebrations of Christmas on December 25th go back as far as the, uh, at least the middle of the second century A.D., uh, and likely before then, uh, but you don't have a lot of written documentation on uh, some of those things at that point. But as early as 306 AD, we do have written documentation that um, uh, Christians were commonly doing this. It had become an established tradition by that point. And so um, uh, there's a number of 
uh, reasons why we believe that um, this is the reason, uh, the reason we celebrate Christmas in December. Um, but one of them has to do with uh, what we now call the 12 days of Christmas. And uh, in the 12 days of Christmas in the song, uh, it's all about gift giving and whatnot. But actually, um, when, you, when you look at some of the history of uh, just the Christmas story and uh, we find that um, uh, these 12 days that begin in December uh, lead to church practices that took place in January. And so they felt like right in the middle of that, around December 25th, would be a great day to celebrate the incarnation because it leads into the Lenten season and other things like that that begin uh, later on leading towards the other important significant issue in scripture, which is um, the Passover event uh, where Christ becomes our Passover at the Easter time. And so uh, it's all sort of connected uh, in that manner, rather than just us taking a holiday from others. Uh, but uh, we have actually, we've got good historical foundations and documentation for this is how this has been practiced. It's not to say that we believe Christ was really born that day. Um, most likely he was born in the springtime, uh, not in the winter. But again, we don't really know. It's just all conjecture. Yeah. yeah, and related to that, I mean, some people say, oh, well, we just have Christmas here because that's when the winter solstice is. And, and the, I mean, they're not related. These are separate. These are separate holidays. But just as I take great hope in seeing people uh you know celebrating similar having similar stories across cultures because it makes me believe in the truth of the christian story i actually really love the symbolism of having christmas happen so close to the winter solstice because just as the just as at least here in the west we're getting the the darkest uh shortest days we're celebrating the arrival of the light of the world and i I'm thankful for that. I don't think it's an accident. It does my heart good to remember the arrival of Jesus, the, the light of the whole world, just as things are getting so dark and cold. So I, I, I think it turned out to be for our good here. Yeah, certainly. And uh, I, I think uh, just as you're saying, you know, when you get into this sort of time of the season, especially, I mean, you know, today we live in a world where we have lights and we have nice clothes and heaters everywhere. And, uh, you know, for many, many centuries, uh, it was just kind of like, all right, get ready. You know, it's, it's sort of like the, uh, the old story of the animals in the forest have to get ready for winter. And then when they don't get ready for winter, well, it's not a good winter for them. And, uh, in the same way for humanity, for many, many centuries, it was get ready for winter. It's coming. Mm-hmm. And you've got to have everything stocked up and stored up. The days get shorter, the nights get colder. And, you know, you've got fire, but you don't have all the modern luxuries that we have today. And so having a bright spot in the midst of that, the beginning of that, um, I, I think is really a great, uh, great way and time to refocus. Uh, I also wanted to mention just very briefly. Uh, so I talked about the 12 days of Christmas and celebrations uh. happening you know, in December. Um, I, I should have said this more clearly. Um, but between December 25th and January 6th is 12 days. And the Eastern Orthodox Church typically celebrated Christmas on January 6th, uh, 
-hmm. whereas the Western church celebrated on the 25th. And so the 12 days for the song uh, come from the days between the 25th and January 6th, um, based on the two celebratory times between the Eastern church and the Western church throughout church history. So anyway, yeah. that's just sort of a, so, a random side note, but. That's nice. Scott, does that mean we get to keep listening to Christmas music all the way until January 6th if we want to? I mean, you can listen to Christmas music for Christmas in July <laughs> if you want to. <laughs> I, I, yeah, and I sometimes do. <laughs> but uh I, I uh, think, yeah, I think uh, Scott Higginbotham, one of the guys that's on here frequently with us, uh, posted something the other day on social media about Christmas music starts after Thanksgiving, not before. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but some people said, no, no, November 1st, you can turn it on. Um, I think that uh, as much as I love Christmas music, uh, sometimes you can overplay it. But uh, mm-hmm. what I really love about Christmas music is music that actually helps me focus on uh, the actual events of Christmas. And so I, I enjoy Christmas pop, um, but I, I really love traditional Christmas hymns and um, hymns that deal with just the incarnation itself and hymns that deal with the coming of Christ and the joy that the coming of Christ brings and uh, hymns that focus not only on his birth, but also on the life he'll live leading up to his death and resurrection. So, uh, yeah, listen to Christmas music until January 6th. Uh, but as you listen, look for songs that also have to do with the real meaning of Christmas and not just about, um, you know, what presents you're going to give your loved one this year or whatnot. Absolutely. Now, this uh, this time right here, Advent, the season leading up to Christmas is, is really my favorite time. Um because it's this time of hope and anticipation um, and tension as we remember Jesus who already came, but also we look forward to his return when he will make all things new. And uh, so the more Christmas songs I can get that really dwell in that space of hope and longing and expectation for Jesus's arrival, then the happier I am, because I, I love this part. It, it's in the anticipation and it's in the hope during a season when I need it. Um, so I then, of course, I'm happy to let the Christmas season proper extend a little bit longer <laughs> into January. So I get that full celebration as well. Yeah, very good. Well, um, you know, the, the events of Christmas are, are really important uh, for our culture. Uh, it's certainly a time to be with family. It's certainly a time to hopefully take some time away from work, to relax, to rest, and um, to just spend some time thinking through all the things that have happened over the course of the last year. And um, that could be obviously some great things that have happened. It also involves dealing with maybe traumatic things or difficult things that have happened over the last year. And one of the nice things about Christmas coming at the end of the year is it provides a great opportunity for us to look back and go, here's what the Lord has done working with us and around us throughout this last year. Uh, It's also uh, a time to look forward to say, you know, what am I going to do to make myself available to the Lord's calling and leading in the year ahead? And Focusing on the incarnation right as the year begins hopefully helps encourage people to also, um, you know, get off on the right foot in the new year with going, hey, you know, I want to make these changes or I want to, um, you know, move this direction or I feel God leading me this way with the ministry that I'm doing. 
And um, it becomes a great uh, just sort of time to sort of recap the year and then begin the next year uh, in just spiritually, if you will, in this time of hopefully renewal and refreshment that comes with uh, focusing on the incarnation event. Absolutely. And I think that when we do that, we can, you know, we can say with Mary, you know, I'm the Lord's servant. We can learn from her example. And also we can trust that with God, all things are possible, which is also part of that story. And, and I, I hope through those parts of the Christmas story to, to uh, move into the new year in hope. And not only that, but to know that, um, God is with us, right? He's Emmanuel. He's, he's God with us. And this is part of that hope of the incarnation, that even as we step forward into whatever is next, God is with us. Yes, indeed. Um, you know, over the next few weeks, I want to encourage you as listeners to uh, think about what you can do to show kindness to others. Think about what you can do to redeem uh, this cold, drab time of year. Think about how you can point others to the gospel, point others to Christ, and think about how you can focus on all the things that come with the idea of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us mm. and living in a manner that uh, brought about uh, redemption of God's people created in his image. And um, yep. As you do all that, uh, I just want to also just sort of plug the next two podcasts. We're doing three Christmas podcasts this year. And so this is our first one. The next podcast, we're going to be talking about Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy, and how as parents we should be uh, or not be or certainly be um, utilizing these things and how they can be reflective of Christian theology uh, and how they can be redemptive. And then we're also going to be talking uh, in the third podcast about the true story of St. Nicholas, who uh, was a bishop in the 300s AD in Turkey, of all places. All right. So uh, That's going to be, be great. Yeah. Uh, Christine, again, thanks so much for your time today and for being with us. For those of you listening. Thank you. Yeah. For those of you listening, thanks for the listen, and we'll see you again next time on the Faith and Culture Now podcast.